BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Perhaps you've noticed that the Bay Area hasn't built enough housing for decades, so rents and home prices are some of the highest in the entire world. Well, one component of solving that problem could be the slate of our region's mega projects. We'll take stock of them, and then... Oh man, we've got an emerging legend here in the Bay Area and beyond. Yes, that's right, it's Amy Schneider the first woman to crack a million dollars on Jeopardy, and she's still going. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Expect a lot of construction in the coming year around the Bay Area as developers move forward on various massive real estate projects. These are the heavy iron of solving our housing crisis, the kind of developments that take years to plan and construct. They can transform a pocket of a city with new housing, office space, retail, and outdoor areas. In San Francisco alone, work could start on about 3,000 housing units in this type of development. So today, we look at our local mega projects and ask, what role are they likely to play in ameliorating some of our housing problems? We're joined by J.K. Deneen, Bay Area housing reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, J.K. Thanks for having me. Sarah Karlinski, senior advisor at SPUR, a nonprofit public policy organization focused on civic planning and urban issues in the Bay Area. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Very glad to be here. And we have Enrique Landa, partner at Associate Capital the firm that recently started construction on the Dogpatch Power Station, a 29-acre waterfront project with commercial retail, residential, and hotel space in San Francisco. Welcome, Enrique. Thanks for having me on, Alexis. Yeah. J.K., let's start with you. Just set us up. What is a mega project? Like, how do we define one of those? Uh, these are generally projects that require a special development agreement with the city, there's um, frequently there on either former industrial uh, sites, uh, mothballed factories, or uh, on former military sites like Treasure Island or the Hunters Point Shipyard or Mir Island or the Concord Naval Weapons Station. Um, they're projects that often require pretty much everything in terms of uh, of um, infrastructure. They need streets and sidewalks and streetlights and water mm. and sewer and oftentimes public transit improvements. And um, so uh, they're projects that, that can take easily a decade or, or even two 
just to get to the final approval in the mm -hmm. process. Um, and then they can take a lot longer to build after that. Um, the, the, so the, that's the challenge. It's like pushing a very heavy boulder up a hill um, and it can take forever. And there's often lawsuits. There's clean environmental cleanup issues with lots of toxins and-, and um, Certainly a lot of issues out at Hunter's Point on that. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, you know, the, 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 uh, the upside of that is that, um, you know, once you're at the top of the hill, like things can go pretty fast um, in the right kind of economic environment. Um, and that's yeah. what we're seeing right now in, in a few of these, these. So roughly half of San Francisco's um, housing pipeline is caught up in these mega projects, hmm. about 35,000 units. Um, and, you know, some are like really starting to cook right now and others are, are very much on the back burner. Yeah. I think mega projects kind of like when the city says about a, a piece of industrial land, like, you know what, let's just start over. <laughs> let's just do this over again. Uh, Jake, tell us about some of those uh, mega projects in the pipeline that are moving forward in the region. Right. So um, the big one and perhaps the most surprising one is Treasure Island, um, which has been a 20 year process to get to this point. Um, you know, it's, it's a man-made island, um, about 400 acres in the middle of the Built bay. for the World's Fair, right, originally? Right, exactly. And Yerba Buena Island, which is uh, connected to Treasure Island, is, is uh, a natural rocky outcrop. But Treasure Island, um, you know, had all kinds of issues. It had environmental cleanup issues because the stuff that the Navy left behind, it needed um, to, a bunch of dirt added to it for, for, sea, for sea level rise protection. Um, and it needed transportation. So they've actually built a new ferry terminal um, on the uh, west side of the island, which will allow people to get back and forth between the ferry building in under six minutes, I think it is. Wow. Um, so that's a game changer. And, and what we're seeing now is um, the first condos, 260 um, condos are opening on Yerba Buena Island. The first uh, affordable project, um, which is uh, going to house um, formerly homeless veterans, among other people, is, uh, is, will finish up um, in the summer, I think. Uh, and then there's roughly a thousand more units that could break ground this year. Um, so very quickly, uh, Treasure Island is going to have a whole lot of new people living there. Well, and on the other side of Treasure Island, too, on the east side, there's now the bike path that goes all the way to your Buena Island and then down to Treasure Island, which is one of the most beautiful ways uh, of seeing the bay. Hey, Enrique Landa, you're a developer, and we know that these projects take many years to plan, get approvals, start construction. Can you walk us through how the power plant there, I guess Dogpatch Power Plant or what was the Petrero Power Plant project, how it came to be? And how did you know when you bought the site that it could be this kind of mixed-use development? Sure. Well, the, you know, the development of Power Station really has been part of a long-term process. And it's part of that land recycling that you're talking, that JK was talking about, about taking former industrial lands and that have sort of had their time in the sun as industrial projects and now are finding another use. And this is something that's common, not only in San Francisco, but around the world, right? Soho in New York was an industrial neighborhood. And today it's one of the most expensive residential neighborhoods in that city. 
what happened, what's happening here is you start started a process where the community came together to close that power plant. And it was something that former supervisor Sophie Maxwell started and Dennis Herrera, who's now head of the PUC, really led the effort and said, do we really need another uh, gas fired power plant in the middle of the city? And the community forced a massive effort to close it. That was sort of step one. The second step was imagining what you could do with this. And they always thought, and the thought was for everyone, is that something else better could happen here. And that's where we got to come along. So we got had the opportunity to buy uh, this site from a former power company. And uh, as far as what you can do, you start with the big listening session. And you go and talk to the community. And you listen and you listen and you listen. And the community gives you great feedback as to how to start. And you pair that with creatives and architects who start thinking about how you put in the infrastructure to make a neighborhood and make a community. And that's sort of step one. And you start with the art of the possible. And through a couple of years of a community process, which is very intense, uh, we come out with a compromise of what should be built. And if it's done right, uh, you end up with something that is not only uh, developable, but will be richly supported by a community. And that's how these projects get to go quickly. So, so that's... I'm imagining, Enrique, that the main sticking point here is for residents of areas that formerly were industrial or abutted these industrial areas, they're like, well, are we actually going to get to live in these places? Will there be housing that's affordable for the current residents of this area? Or are you changing our neighborhood by turning over all the residents and bringing in a bunch of, of new rich people? So how did that what did you land on? What did that compromise end up looking like between, you know, the most profitable project that you could possibly build if you sketched it out all all on your own in a developer's fever dream and like what the community might want to make sure that the that there'd be the largest percentage of affordable housing there? All right. So there's, there's two parts that the community that lives there wants to see. Number one is they want to see rich community benefits that come in. And so in our project, what's that about? Well, it's opening up the waterfront opening up parks on our site, we're putting in seven acres of parks and that becomes, that becomes a big part of your community plan. The second part are great partnerships for community facilities with great community organizations. So we're super happy that we're working with the Y to bring a, a, a YMCA to dog patch. And we're pretty excited about that. We also have partnerships with La Cocina to bring in a community organization there. So that's part of what, that's part of that mix. The other part, which you mentioned is affordable housing. And look, any developer who does, who does not focus a significant amount of their time in affordable housing will not be successful in San Francisco. And a big part of that, and a big part of what I believe in, it's, is that you have successful neighborhoods where you can have all different uh, and all different types of people all living together. So for Power Station, it was a demand to do 30% affordable housing, just like the public projects. And there's project that Power Station is a private project, but there's a lot of projects in our city that are built on public land with private mm -hmm. developers. And we had to match that. And so what does it take is it takes an incredible amount of creativity. And so we're working with the best and brightest from affordable housing. Uh, we're trying to find ways to do missing middle housing, which is a really tough thing to build. And mega projects are a way you can do that and then deliver a lot of housing. So it's uh, you know, I, I will say that I spent the last three years on a community process and learning how to build affordable housing. But the the end result is that we're going to build over 800 units of affordable housing, riding dog pads, and we're super proud of that. And that's that's how you start that balance. Yeah. And in the end, the community was really supportive of that plan because they saw that there was things for them 
things like neighborhood serving retail, which didn't really exist in these, you know, developing neighborhoods. There's no supermarket in Dogpatch, for example, but also housing for all types of people that are going to keep the keep the neighborhood interesting and then get ways for them to better enjoy the neighborhood. So that's how our project was approved and unanimously supported at every level uh, that uh, considered it. Sarah Karlinski with Spur. You know, when we're talking 800 units of affordable housing, how many units of affordable housing is San Francisco building, you know, say in a, in a given year? Um, I don't I don't actually know how many units they're building in a given year. I know that the um, the hope is that the city will build roughly 5000 units a year a year total. Um, mm-hmm. The region as a whole needs to build roughly um, 450,000 units over the next eight years, a combination mm-hmm. of market rate, affordable, and the missing middle that Enrique talked about. And, um, you know, these mega projects are absolutely critical to addressing the region's um, housing crisis at every level. Um, Spur actually did uh, a bunch of work trying to define what it will take to create an affordable region. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we found was that we would need to build roughly 2.2 million housing units over the next 50 years, which is roughly 45,000 units a year. The Bay Area is nowhere near close to building that. We build roughly 20,000 units a year. Um, And to actually meet those goals, these these projects, these mega projects are are just enormously critical and they can be completely transformative as Enrique was talking about. They can contain a very high level of affordability. Um, He mentioned that the that his project's 30% affordable. Mission Rock is looking to build roughly 40% of their units as affordable. Um, And they're able to do that in part, um, as Enrique mentioned, because a lot of them um, are built on public land and can utilize public land and then find creative ways of financing all the infrastructure that's needed Mm because these are going to be complete communities. As you mentioned there, you know, it's like, let's start over. Let's think about what to do with this, with this parcel of land that doesn't have, you know, um, maybe it's industrially utilized and and we want to change. And so it's just really important if we want to address the affordable housing crisis in the region to build in these areas if we don't want to um, have exacerbate to sprawl. Leave it right there, Sarah. We're about to go oh, to a break. We're talking sorry. mega real estate projects in the Bay Area with Sarah Karlinski with Spur, J.K. Deneen, a Bay Area housing reporter with The Chronicle, and Enrique Landa, a partner with Associate Capital. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about mega projects in the Bay Area, and we want to hear from you. What do you think of the mega projects being built in the Bay Area, perhaps near you, perhaps not? What parts of the Bay Area do you want to see significantly redeveloped? We have a lot of these old uh, Army and Navy bases around. Uh, give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum can email your questions 
to forum at kqed.org. We are joined by J.K. Deneen, housing reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Sarah Karlinski, senior advisor at SPUR, a nonprofit public policy organization focused on civic planning and urban issues here in the Bay, and Enrique Landa, partner at Associate Capital, which is the firm that recently started construction on the Dogpatch Power Station, which is a 29-acre waterfront project there in San Francisco. Uh, Enrique, we have a, uh, a tweet, a uh, comment from Cliff. says, lots of exciting mega projects. As a Potrero Hill resident, I'm excited about the redevelopment going on at Pier 70 and the neighboring Potrero Power Station. But it's also inequitable that the city is counting on a few large sites, primarily, primarily on the east and southeast side of town, for the bulk of our new housing development. San Francisco also needs to look to plans like Raphael Mandelman's fourplex proposal to add geographic equity. And actually, having read it, I'm going to direct that question over to J.K. What do we think about geographic equity? Like, does it make sense to direct this much development to the southeast part of the city uh, and not other places? I mean, it, it's not ideal, um, but that's where these big industrial and former military sites are generally located. However, um, I mean, there are projects on the west side of town that uh, in San Francisco that are uh, that are that have promise. I mean, but they've been going quite slowly. Park Merced, um, which is a, a plan to add thousands of units to that already pretty dense community um, off of 19th Avenue. Right. Uh, that was approved 12 years ago after uh, an extensive process and not one unit of housing has been built there. Um, and I mean, I think that speaks to the, the how complicated and, and diff- financially uh, uh, tough yeah. these projects are. Uh, there's another project at next to City College at the Balboa Reservoir, which was approved about two years ago. A little bit less, and um, and and that's you know still in the in the planning phase, um, but yeah. So there are a few projects on the west side of town, but um, Cliff is right. There's it's it's not um, ideal to have all of our housing built, um, you know, sort of on the the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, Noel tweets at us. Uh, the question is, in the former industrial and military lands, which is really what we're talking about here, has toxic cleanup been done correctly? Why aren't you talking about that? Treasure Island, Hunter's Point, for example. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? How do we make sure that these lands really are safe for people to live on them? There have been really persistent questions, particularly in Hunter's Point, about the quality of the environmental cleanup that's been done there. Yeah, I think I think it's absolutely critical that uh, that we ensure that these places are safe. And um, from what I understand, the areas that have actually been transferred to the city um, from the Navy have in, engaged in, in deep levels of cleanup. And um, I think what you're referring to, um, as I understand it, uh, there for some of the Navy owned land, the Navy had a contractor that was, yeah, was falsifying. The, uh, yeah. I mean, it was just really, really terrible. I mean, just terrible and um, really undermines kind of public confidence and public support. So it's really, it's really up to the public sector to, and the city and, and the state to make sure that we get this right so that people can be very confident that where they live is safe. Yeah. And um, Enrique, I, let's, can I, can I throw that one to Enrique? Just like, 
this is obviously something that you you face. You're going to be selling quite expensive units on what was quite degraded in land. Um, how, how do you go above and beyond so that people know for sure that none of these shenanigans like seem to have happened in Hunter's Point uh, are, are happening with your environmental contractors? And how do you make sure that the public can feel confident in that? Sure. So, you know, not all industrial sites are created the same. And certainly sites that had weapons are far more complicated than sites that produced, um, that have more of a petrochemical background. And as a society, we're very good at doing that. But the way you do that is transparency. And what we do at our site, we take this very seriously. And one of the things that we thought about really early on was not only did we have a regulator from the state that's watching this, but we have someone watching all of the remediation people all the time and all the information is available online. And for us, that's the answer. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. And in this case, we take that incredibly seriously. And we know it's our commitment to deliver uh, a place that's safe for people to live, work and play. Let's go to Guillermo in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for taking my phone call. My question is whether the developers are thinking about the race of the ocean and all these great projects going on all around the Bay Area and what are the developers are doing to address that issue right now because the last thing that I don't want to see it is like in 10 years or in 20 years, they will come back to the taxpayers and say, oh, the oceans are racing. We need to raise up this. We need to address this issue. And we will be paying for instead of be the developer paying for it right now at the get-go. Yeah. Guillermo, thank you for that question. Sarah, let's um, route that one to you. How, when developers are working on these projects that are going to have timelines of several decades, we have climate change knowledge that is uh, increasing. We know more about the sensitivity of the climate. We know, have more detailed projections of how uh, sea level rise is going to affect the Bay Area coastline. What is the process by which those kind of projections get mapped onto these mega projects, particularly ones that are built right on the shoreline, which many of these industrial redevelopment projects are? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And I think, you know, it, it is tricky because the science changes and the projections change over time. And, and many of these projects have enormously long timelines. But I mean, basically, you know, the, um, the developer and the public sector use the best information that is available at the time to try to determine how high the, the seas are, are going to go and then deal also with, you know, other other types of um, potential hazards. You talked about TI, Treasure Island, and, and not just sea level rise um, is going to occur there, but also it's in danger of earthquakes and had mm -hmm. to deal with liquefaction and 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 all of this. So there, there are typically multiple hazards that need to get planned for. Um, but the great thing about um, some of these mega projects is that they're large enough that they can can deal with the infrastructure needs up front. And there's a lot of conversation about horizontal development, which, which is about basically preparing the land for development. And then the vertical development is what we see. It's the actual buildings. Um, so with a large project, you can you can really think about and plan for and, and finance, um, frankly, uh, many of these uh, types of improvements that are needed, raising raising the the land, thinking about other kind of creative ways of addressing um, climate change impacts. Yeah. Let's bring in caller uh, Andrea. 
from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm hoping that you guys could define what affordability means in housing and what that would look like, what kind of incomes qualify, and what rents are like that are affordable. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Uh, JK, uh, can you talk to us about how, you know, let's just take San Francisco as an example, defines affordability. Um, and then to Andrea's second point, we've talked a little bit about this uh, so-called missing middle housing, which I think might also address uh, some of her concerns. So maybe talk about those two things, you know, sort of broadly how we define affordability and then the different kind of tranches within that, like the missing middle. Yes. Yeah, so um, the uh, affordability is defined by area median income levels and um, generally uh, affordable housing is built with tax credits um, and affordable housing bonds. In order to use those, you have to um, be under 80% of median and in some cases, um, under 60%. So for a four-person household, um, that would be, you would have, in order to qualify, you would have to have an income of under $106,000. So if you have two, two working people, you know, who both make, make 50 or so, um, you would qualify um, for a single person um, at the 80% level, it's about $75,000 income that you would have to be under. Um, so that, you know, in some cases, some, some entry level teachers would qualify, um, you know, muni drivers, um, uh, technicians at hospitals, you know, various, um, professions would, would still qualify. And then maybe I'll have Sarah address the kind of missing middle issue since you mentioned it earlier, Sarah. Yeah, I think, um, um, missing middle is absolutely uh, a, kind of a key component of the of the housing need band. Um, if you look at, as JK mentioned, um, tax credit projects, they typically served households between zero and sixty percent of area median income, so um, sort of lower income households. And then market rate housing is affordable typically to those at at the higher end of the spectrum. Let's say you know, 170, 200% of area median, but those in the middle um, typically make not enough money to qualify for affordable subsidized housing um, and also can't afford new market rate housing. So they're sort of stuck in the middle and there are two or possibly more ways of addressing this. One is just by simply building way more housing. We have an enormous housing shortage as we talked about at kind of the top of the show and building more housing, producing more housing absolutely helps address that um, structural um, imbalance between supply and demand. Uh, but the, the other way of doing it, and I think Enrique actually alluded to it in, in his project, is that in some of these mega projects, you can cross subsidize and, and plan to actually build some housing for those in those middle incomes um, using uh, rents or um, sales prices from the, the upper end and using that to subsidize those in the middle and then also applying for um, state and federal funding for the affordable units, yeah. if that makes sense. Thanks so much for that question, Andrea. I want to uh, bring in another caller, John from Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Morning. Wealthy, wealthy people spend far less percentage of their assets on housing than poor people. Therefore, it is a fact that con- people continually ignore 
And I know it has have me built three houses myself. The biggest profit margin comes when you can build the biggest, most expensive house you can. And therefore, if you are a contractor, you have to avoid the issue. You have to uh, build the biggest, most expensive houses you can. That is why we have our problem. I hope they understand that. When someone says, oh, that's a good question, by now, any American radio listener should know that means I'm going to avoid directly answering the question. These contractors are out to make money. They are not a charity. They do not want to build cheap houses because there's not as much profit in it. If anybody can deny that, they can try and provide the evidence. Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Enrique, why don't you talk about the economics of a mega project, you know, where you're building 2,500 units versus, you know, some something smaller where maybe there's, you know, uh, John seemed to be talking about, you know, uh, large single family homes. And certainly single family homes used to be smaller, but we also don't build a lot of single family homes in the Bay Area anymore. So uh, why don't we talk about that? Like, what, what is what are the economics of a project like this look like? Sure. I think John's talking about suburban development. And in suburban in suburban areas, large single family homes are what gets built because land is so expensive and there's no advantage of building smaller units. In urban environments, it's completely different. Um, the larger units, the three bedroom units, sometimes are less profitable and the more profitable ones are the smaller the studios and your one bedrooms. And one of the things we really liked about our project is we develop a very high level of two and three bedroom units that are suitable for families that keep them in the city. And as far as the economics, um, you know, Alexis, you, you got that set. What it is, the mega projects and what helps them and make them resilient is they have lots of different land uses. Uh, on our site, we have life science, we have office, we have hotel, we have retail, we have for sale residential, we have, uh, you know, for rent residential. And so that cross subsidy uh, helps you deliver a little bit of everything. And that's, that's how that economic works. It's, it's no mystery. It's just you, you, you're more resilient because you're not relying on just one thing at any one time. And the goal is that the, the different parts of the project help each other along. So that, that's the part. Uh, but in cities, the real challenge is, um, you know, not in houses, but in, in units to really build housing for families and mm -hmm. to build that missing middle housing that no one's building. And we hope very much that on our project, we can deliver a lot of missing middle housing. And it's something my team spends an awful lot of time on. JK, um, why don't we talk about some of the projects that aren't moving forward, that haven't, you know, run the gauntlet and solved all the problems that are necessary, community support, environmental cleanup, financing and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the shipyard is the most notorious example. They started out gangbusters in construction. The, the Navy had transferred the first parcel, which is the hilltop there, mm -hmm. um, to, to um, the developer. And they started, you know, these little little apartment buildings were like marching up the hill and, and they're building parks. And then, um, you know, the, the whole scandal with Tetra Tech and the, and the environmental cleanup kind of froze everything. So, I mean, they, they, that project was, was approved by the city 12 years ago. By now we should have thousands and thousands of housing units and parks and, and buildings for artists. And, but yet we have instead, I think they've built about 550 units. There's about 70 under construction. So it, it's, um, you know, not, not even 5% of, of what is planned there. Um, 
and uh, and it's it's just going very slowly. And where Candles Candlestick Park, where the um, where the Niners used to play, where that was torn down um, five, six, seven years ago, and and nothing is happening down there. And that's just the 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 economics. I mean, the 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 developer. Um, uh, you know, um, ran into uh, this, the Navy spent $1 billion on cleanup so far. And yet there's all these questions still about whether it was done properly, whether it's safe, whether the other parcels that, I mean, the people, the the environmental cleanup people and the Navy um, and the EPA all agree that the, that the hilltop that is being developed right now, which was always housing is, is safe. Um, but the rest of the land is is now the navy is is not even planning on transferring that um, to be developed for another two three years, and that could really um, could go much farther out. So I think that um, yeah, that's like the that the example of what ha- worst case scenario, I guess. Yeah, um, and I know that the best case scenario might be something like Bay Meadows in San Mateo in like twenty seconds. What makes uh, Bay Meadows what you consider a successful mega project? I mean, it's already had great transit. It was a, uh, it's in an area with, with a lot of growing tech companies. It had, um, uh, yeah, it had a train station right on site and it was a horse track. So it didn't have any heavy uh, industrial mm-hmm. um, history. That's great. We have been talking about the Bay Area's mega projects and the role that they may play in helping us address this housing crisis. We've been joined by J.K. Deneen, housing reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks, J.K. Thanks for having me, Alex. Also had Sarah Karlinski, senior advisor at Spur. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you very much. And Enrique Landa, partner at Associate Capital, which is the firm that's behind the Dogpatch Power Station. Thanks so much, Enrique. Thanks for having me. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You want to stay tuned. We'll be talking to Jeopardy! champion Amy Schneider. She's from Oakland. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.